Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I am pleased to welcome Jennifer Randalls. Jennifer is the author of Proposing Prosperity, Marriage Education Policy and Inequality in America, uh, out this year in 2017. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I am pleased to welcome Jennifer Randalls. Jennifer is the author of Proposing Prosperity, Marriage Education Policy and Inequality in America, uh, out this year in 2017 from Columbia University Press. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Um, I'm very glad to have you here and looking forward to talking about the book. Uh, before we do that, I wonder if you could tell our listeners just a little bit about um, the, the, the the kinds of things that you are interested in, have been interested in, and perhaps what it is that led you to this particular project. Absolutely. So I am a sociologist, and I primarily focus on what's happening with low-income families in the U.S. and what programs and policies are out there to help low-income parents and caregivers meet their goals for either partnering or uh, taking care of their children. And I was actually initially drawn to this topic way back when I was an undergrad. I was looking for a thesis topic as a senior and uh, it was a few years after this big overhaul of U.S. welfare policy in the 1990s. Uh, a lot, you know, Bill Clinton's promise to end welfare as we know it. And what they did as part of that policy, right at the beginning of that law, they said they were going to promote marriage as a way of reducing poverty among American families. And I knew about this when I was looking for my research topic. I had actually come across this in a political science class I had taken. And I was really intrigued by this idea of using marriage and and trying to shape people's personal decisions around marriage and childbearing as a way to prevent social problems such as poverty. And so that was way back in 2002. And at the time, I was able to do a little bit of research in the state of Oklahoma which uh, was the really the first and, and the largest statewide marriage initiative. And so fast forward several years later, when I was looking for a dissertation topic, uh, this was still in the back of my mind. I was very interested in this. I didn't get to do too much data collection when I was an undergrad, uh, but I knew that there was a lot going on in, in California, which is where I was doing my graduate work at UC Berkeley. Um, and... Um, I really wanted to understand how this policy was being implemented on the ground, because the way that the government decided to promote marriage was largely by funding uh, what are called relationship education or marriage education courses. And a lot of these were being funded specifically for the parents who were 
economically struggling. So I wanted to uh, actually see if I could go out and, and do some ethnographic research in these classes that were being funded by the government. And luckily I was able uh, to do just that. And I actually got trained and certified uh, to teach 20 of these programs. So that, so I was going to say, that's, that seems like a terrific segue uh, to me to start talking about the book itself. So can you talk a little bit um, about the methods? What did you do in order to, to gain the kinds of insights that you did about these, these marriage, or religious, marriage or relationship education programs? Yeah, great question. So I primarily did two things. I wanted to do something that was a way of really mapping the landscape of what these marriage education programs, uh, what, what they looked like. What were they actually teaching people? When couples actually came to these classes, what were they learning? So that's where I did the, I, I got trained in 20 of these programs and a wide variety of programs. Some were for single individuals. Uh, they're called partner selection programs. Uh, most of them were, in fact, for couples. Uh, some were targeted at unmarried couples uh, with or without children. Some were targeted to couples who were already married. I even looked at a, a few programs that were specifically intended for couples who were thinking about divorce, what are called divorce prevention programs. But I also really wanted to uh, look into a program, one program in much greater depth. And so whereas half of the book really looks at what I found in, in my own experience, taking these marriage classes and undergoing the training, uh, I knew that, you know, I wanted to understand how, how couples who were economically struggling, how they were understanding these classes and, you know, were they really learning what policymakers thought they were going to learn? Was it influencing their decisions about marriage, et cetera? Uh, so I knew that I had to actually study a, a real program on the ground and focus on couples experiences. And so in addition to the marriage education trainings, what I did was I looked at a, a program uh, for over a year, uh, that um, I call uh, Flourishing Families. And I spent over 300 hours uh, not only attending the classes uh, and participating to the extent that I could as much as life experience allowed. Uh, I held a lot of babies. Parents would bring their children to these classes. Um, I cleaned up after a lot of meals. I was trying to make myself useful. Uh, but then also interviewing uh, 50, 50 individuals uh, and many of the couples who were attending these classes in addition to the people who who ran the program and who were teaching the classes. So, um, so, so I'm sort of torn between jumping into to asking you to summarize what it is that you've learned and, and maybe asking a little bit more about, why don't we talk a little bit about what goes on in those kinds of classes or the range of kinds of, of things that, that go on? What, what is it that they are trying to teach people and how are they going about doing that? That is a that is a great question and, and probably the most common one that I get. Um, so a lot of things are going on. It's it, quite a bit of variation depending on the program, but the major focus is uh, communication skills, uh, communication and, and conflict resolution is usually the language around what they're trying to teach. So what I found was interestingly, uh, and even one of the chapters in the book is entitled "The Missing M Word," that a lot of these programs actually didn't 
explicitly talk about marriage. And if they did, they didn't do so at length, that it they really tended to focus on how how we learn to be better communicators, more active listeners, uh, how we learn these communication skills where, you know, we're very uh, focused on our partner, what our partners are saying, trying to understand them, using certain kinds of speaker and listener techniques, um, uh, certain things to avoid. A uh, common one that came up in a lot of different classes was always speak from your own point of view and use statements that include I and me and aren't necessarily directed at the person as a way of maybe reducing that, that implication of blame in the way that we talk to our partners. Uh, learning to communicate with partners uh, using humor especially when we're having conflict. Um, there was also a lot of information on, um, you know, ha- really understanding your partner and uh, another strategy that came up a lot, uh, Gary Chapman, and he's, he's a very uh, big person in this world of relationship education. He has this idea called the five love languages, trying to understand how it is that our partners experience love. Uh, his, his idea is that some of us feel very loved when our partners do acts of service for us, whereas others of us feel loved when our partners make verbal expressions of how much they love us. So a lot of these classes focused on things like, well, you know, figure out your partner's love language and don't always assume that the way you're going to feel love is the way that your partner's going to feel love. So they were the understanding was that they were about marriage and about supporting people's efforts to create and sustain happy and healthy marriages. But when you actually got into the classes, a lot of it really did primarily focus on these communication and conflict resolution skills. And I mean, a lot of that sounds like pretty ordinary couples counseling sort of stuff. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, so, so what's wrong with that? That, that sounds like that's all sorts. I, one of the, one of the hats I wear is I teach social workers and, you know, sort of there are all sorts of people from all kinds of walks of life who can benefit from learning, uh, more effective communication skills with the people in their lives. So, so why shouldn't we be funding this through the federal government for, uh, poor and low income families as well? If they might not have access to say a private clinician or practitioner. That is an excellent question, one that I talk at length about in the book. I am I'm actually, I, I praise these programs a lot, and I actually say in the book that I think there's a lot of valuable information that can be learned. I, I said, you know, I set in on literally hundreds and hundreds of hours. I use this information currently in my own relationships, in my own marriage. Um, but the, the real question is, do communication skills actually help people address these economic issues that we as social scientists, sociologists actually know are the reflection of larger structural issues like low income parents, uh, you know, their struggles to, to find and keep jobs that pay living wages or their access to education. Um, so it's, it's not necessarily what's going on in the classes. And, and I should say, to be fair, there were several of the programs, again, it varied quite a bit uh, across the different programs, but a lot of them, especially the ones that were targeting youth populations, did have this underlying message of, you know, marriage is good for you, that couples who are married experience a wide variety of benefits that couples who are not married don't tend to experience. And to a point, 
right? Um, they're right. There is a lot of sociological evidence that does indeed find that overall couples who are married, um, kind of the, 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 the line that's often used are, are happier, healthier, and wealthier uh, than overall than couples who are not married. Uh, but, but there are a lot of issues with this. Uh, you know, correlation doesn't mean causation. And we also know based on research that a lot of this has to do with uh, what's predicting why certain people get married, whereas other people don't. And class is huge. We know that couples who are living in poverty are significantly less likely to get married than those who are not living in poverty. And a lot of what I talk about in the book really details why we see this happening. Uh, growing inequality, uh, people are really struggling to really meet the markers uh, of marriageability, uh, being finished with school, uh, having a steady job, being able to afford a home. Um, and so this explains a large part of what scholars call the marriage gap, the fact that we do see these class-based differences in marriage rates. And so my critique of the programs is not so much what uh, couples are learning. I mean, I think the way that some of the instructors presented the information about marriage, especially when I, when I, um, when I went into the classes that were specifically targeted at, at the low-income couples, um, I was surprised, but not really the longer I was there, that couples themselves were pushing back on this marriage message. And that's why I, you know, I talked to instructors when I said, you know, how much, because a lot of the lessons in the curriculum that they used did, in fact, focus on uh, you know, the, the benefits of marriage and, and encouraging these couples to get married as a way of improving their economic situation. And it was really the couples themselves who would push back on this message. And they would say, wait, you're telling me that getting married is going to solve my economic problems? Are you nuts? Um, I, no. I mean, it's and, and, and they would ask them to explain the logic and instructors would say, well, you know, if you've got two people living in the same household, you can pull resources, you know, you can have two incomes to draw on. And then, of course, the parents would challenge that by saying, you know, do you know the last time it was when we both had jobs, you know, when we were both working consistently? And they knew based on their lived experience that that marriage was not going to change their economic situation. And these couples were in such dire financial straits that, I mean, I interviewed several of them in my car because many of these couples were living in theirs. These were couples who could not afford, when they told, when I asked them, you know, you're living together, they all shared children. This was a program specifically for children, uh, for couples with children. And I'd ask them, you know, I'm just, I'm curious, you know, you're telling me you want to get married, you share children, many of them were already cohabiting, and they would tell me, well, we can't afford it. And for some couples, that literally did mean they could not afford, not the big white wedding, uh, but they could not afford the cost of a county marriage license. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's what, there are a couple of things here. One is, is that, that, that research from, uh, Eden and Kefalis in particular, a book called Promises I Can Keep was sort of always hovering in the back of my mind. Um, they're a sort of study of, of Philadelphia women and, and why they wound up not getting marriage. Uh, but I was all married. I was also struck by the observation you made about, uh, your own grandparents in your mind. And you said that, that couples now believe that marriage requires rather than creates a steady economic foundation. This is the, the sort of thing that Kathy Eden and others have discovered is that um, low-income women in particular think of marriage as 
uh, something that they aspire to, right? It's not that they, they live in some sort of separate culture of poverty in which they don't value that as an institution, but they are concerned with establishing some security for themselves and are often um, much more interested in actually having and raising children and getting them stable and secure before they wind up getting married. Now, you find some very similar things here. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what's going on in the mind of the people who you talked with and the ways in which that that sort of doesn't connect with the kinds of programs they're encountering. Absolutely, Stephen. That's such a good point. And uh, I, I read Eden Kafalis. I, I adore that book. Um, I read it many times, actually, uh, as I was trying to find a dissertation topic because I was so taken with uh, the stories from... from it's such a lovely yeah. book. It really is. Yeah. It's Yes, it's 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 really beautiful. And, uh, you know, at the end, they, they do. They talk about these marriage programs and, and how they would need to go beyond just the relationship skills, communication skills angle. Uh, but I, I found a, a lot of very similar things that these couples, uh, both the men and the women I interviewed would say, uh, you know, I do value marriage. I think it's incredibly important, but much like the women that Eden Kafalis interviewed, you know, I, I, I think it's so important that I don't want to risk marrying the wrong person. I don't want to marry someone who's going to be a financial liability. I don't want to get married when I'm going to be a financial liability to that person. And you asked the question about, you know, how, how, how does the policy intent and, and what legislators were thinking, how does that match up with, with how this was being implemented and experienced on the ground? I'm so glad you asked that because that's exactly what uh, I wanted to find out in the project. And I found that, you know, there was a huge disconnect there that policymakers really thought that if we find, you know, if we support low income couples and helping them improve their relationships, which, you know, like you were saying, is, is not a bad goal. And, and these are these are similar to counseling services that low income couples just quite frankly, just don't have access to in the same way as more affluent couples. Uh, however, this idea that marriage was going to lead to prosperity, which is the perspective that the legislators took, which was completely with, at odds, as you know, with how parents were thinking about it. They think you got to be prosperous first, or at least, you know, they're, they're not thinking rich. They're thinking, you know, I want to have stable housing. I want to make sure that I, you know, my children are, you know, have a roof over their head and that I can feed them every week. So it wasn't, I'm waiting to get married until I'm, you know, really wealthy, but they just wanted something resembling more of middle-class stability. And they really did think, no, this is something that you're supposed to attain before you're ready for marriage. And that was, it was not, you know, I drawing on my, my, the example of my grandparents, um, you know, they got married in 1950 at a time when you got married very young and you kind of built your life, you know, marriage, uh, I'm, I'm drawing on Andy Cherlin's work here. That marriage was the foundation of adult life, and you created that prosperity together. And I think the, the legislators' reasoning behind this policy was very much based in that kind of that way of thinking about it. But we know that couples all across across the class spectrum 
for and non-for alike, we just don't think of marriage that way anymore. We think that, you know, marriage is, is the capstone. It's, it's what you do after you've already attained a certain level of prosperity, that that's what makes you marriageable. And so when I'm talking to the couples um, about this kind of logic, you know, they really, it just did not in any way line up with their lived experiences. And I should also take the opportunity here uh, to say that in addition to these communication skills, conflict resolution skills, a lot of what the classes were teaching was money management skills based on the logic that if you have couples who are struggling, especially if you have couples who are struggling, because all of the all of the curricula that I studied um, and, and they're right, the research bears this out, uh, all couples affluent, middle-class, poor, right? They fight about money. Um, but they're, they're, what they fight about tends to be very different. So, you know, middle-class households, an example I use in the book was uh, an example that I took from one of these programs where they had couples discuss like how you're going to spend some money. You have like a thousand dollars and they have the wife saying, oh, I want to, you know, buy new curtains. The husband wants to take a trip and that's their fight about money. These were not the kinds of fights that these couples and the program I studied thriving families, you know, an, another, another uh, story I share in the book is uh, there's this man who he's, he's talking about um, if they used, they did the exercises that they were assigned for homework the previous week. And the instructor brings them into the classroom and says, Oh, you know, you were supposed to take, I asked you to take about 10 to 15 minutes every night, just actively listening to your partner. Cause we had discussed active listening the previous week. And he says, can you tell me about the last fight you had? And this, this guy raises his hand and he says, oh, I'll tell you about when we, it, it, it was just, just, just a few days ago. And she came to me and she said, we've got $5. That's all we've got left. And I needed the money for bus fare to get to work. She needed the money to buy formula for the baby. And I just told her, if you had been a better communicator, you know, if you had just told me straight, we could have resolved this issue. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, curtains versus a trip. $5 bus fare or food for the baby. These are very different kinds of conversations, fights about money. And as, and as you, yeah. I'm sorry, I was just saying, as you point out that, that, I mean, this is sort of the fundamental blindness, not just of this aspect of welfare reform in the 90s, but I would argue that entire piece of legislation um, is this fundamental failure to recognize that, you know, not all the adjustments to your behavior or communication skills in the world is going to make up for the fact that you got $5 available and a whole host of urgent needs. Um, that ain't a communication problem, right? That's not, you know, a, 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 a problem that is amenable to people being more responsible or more open uh, sort of all of these stereotypes we have about poor and low income people, right? That is, they would only sort of be better people and aspire to more by way of middle class values. The problems would disappear. The problem in these households was not enough money, not lack of communication, ultimately, right? Oh, exactly. Exactly, Stephen. And, and I'll, I'll share a, a quote. It's pretty short from one of my uh, respondents that I named Michael in the book. And I asked him, I always ask him, you know, how, how do you feel about these these money management, these budgeting techniques? And he just looked at me and he goes, well, money's easy to manage when you have some. <laughs> no. And I mean, and no. it was 
It was really interesting because they would have these couples do budgeting exercises or they would have them, you know, talk about planning uh, some kind of hypothetical, uh, you know, like a hypothetical wedding or something. And how would you stretch a $500 budget? And the budgeting exercises were fascinating to me because I'm like, if you want people to be teaching classes about how to manage money, you need to get these parents in there teaching these classes. Because I, I mean, the strategies that they use to stretch their money, I mean, as you're, as you're saying, that is not the problem. But it does reflect um, one of many stereotypes, stigmas that we have about people who are living in poverty and that it's, you know, uh, behavioral problems or that it's poor decision making and that, you know, poverty is, is not what it really is, which is a reflection of, you know, systematic inequality, but it, that it's a result of these individual choices. And were there, did you did encounter some programs that at least betrayed a little bit of awareness of that? Yes. 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 Thank you for asking. Yeah. To be fair, there were definitely um, programs that, that, and I would say that these weren't dominant themes, but that did in some ways kind of meet couples where they were at recognizing that, uh, you know, that their relationship struggles uh, were unique and very much shaped by by living in deprivation. Um, and but there was still this undercurrent of, OK, well, let's let's talk about managing your money a little bit more effectively or, you know, let's um, let's talk about, you know, reasons you might want to stay together. And, and I must say there was no a lot of a lot of writing on this policy, uh, especially when the marriage promotion part of welfare uh, first came out, a lot of people were very worried that this was going to be coercive, that it would essentially be the government telling poor people that they had to get married um, or at least unnecessarily influencing that choice and that marriage was going to solve all their economic problems. And, you know, did I find that? No, of course it wasn't that explicit. Um, I think some of the framings around, you know, why is marriage beneficial? One of the arguments I make in the book is I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with teaching people about, you know, marriage research. I, I do that every day in my my family classes. Um, but I, I think that, you know, being more nuanced about why we see some people benefiting from marriage and how not all marriages are beneficial uh, which is, you know, something something that people who are involved in this policy have tried to respond to. Um, the policy that that was created by George W. Bush as a way of actually funneling the public money to these programs was called the Healthy Marriage Initiative. So that was an attempt, I think, by the government to say, you know, it's not just about promoting marriage in general; it is about promoting happy and healthy marriages. But I actually getting in the classes, you know, I, I, I didn't see a lot of discussion about how, you know, marriage is not going to be the right choice in every situation. Um, when I when I got into the, the thriving families classes where I, you know, and listening to them, I mean, definitely to staff. When I interviewed staff, they would acknowledge that, that we're not trying to push people to marry. We recognize that not all couples should be together. Um, they did focus on this idea that, you know, we recognize that a lot of our couples are going to eventually break up, but these communication and conflict resolution skills can still be useful as they try to co-parent after a breakup. So you did see, I think when you got on the ground, you did see uh, a little bit more nuance, I think, because um, the way the debate had really been framed about 
this marriage promotion policy uh, kind of you had this one side that, that seemed to be saying marriage would be this, you know, panacea for all these social problems and other people who thought it was just, you know, kind of ridiculous. And, and I don't think anybody fully fit into either of those camps. Um, but what I wanted to do was, uh, you know, actually go out and talk to the people who are running these programs and, and taking these classes to say, well, how are, how are you thinking about it? And I, I also need to emphasize, too, that uh, the couples themselves told me that they got a lot out of the classes. And interestingly, it was not, as I argue in the book, it was not for the reasons that I think legislators really intended. Um, They liked the classes, not really because it was influencing their ideas um, or choices about marriage. Very few people talk, no, two couples that I spoke with ended up getting married, but they said they were already planning that before they took the classes. So no one told me that the classes themselves influenced their marital choices. What I did hear over and over and over again was how they felt like it did help their communication. And so I'd kind of push past that. I said, okay, well, you know, what, what about it are you finding helpful? Like, do you find, you know, the act of listening or, you know, and it was interesting what they told me because they told me, Stephen, they said, probably the most valuable aspect of doing this is that I'm sitting in that room with other couples, with people just like me who are going through the same things, who are struggling with unemployment, who are struggling to raise kids with very little money, who are fighting constantly with their partners about everything, especially, you know, those meager financial resources. And I'm listening to these other couples and what they fight about sounds exactly like what we're fighting about. And what that helps me realize is that it's not just me. It's not just us. It's not that I'm fundamentally flawed. It's not that we're inherently incompatible as a couple, that there is something about, you know, being poor that really makes sustaining a relationship hard. And so what these classes really allow these couples to do was to understand how these social and economic factors are really bearing down on their relationships. And it reduced their tendency to blame one another. I mean, it's a fascinating sort of an irony there, right? I mean, this is a program that is created out of this belief that, that the, the, the causes of poverty are ultimately behavioral. And one of the consequences of participating in those programs is an understanding that, in fact, those causes are principally structural rather than behavioral. Exactly. Exactly. It was a, it was a very nice irony. Yeah. Which I which I would imagine that the, the 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 program directors are carefully not to report back in order to maintain their grant, right? Yeah, but I I I will say at least when I spoke to the director in our interview and I and I said, you know, this is what I'm getting from the couples. How do you feel about that? And she said, you know, she said, our goal is not necessarily to get people married. It's to allow them to figure out if marriage is right for them. And so um, I, I think that I think they were they were pleased to hear that, that I was finding that they were helping couples. Um, and there were a couple couples, couple, several couples who told me that, um, you know, they, they and I didn't follow them longitudinally. So I don't know for sure if they stayed together. That did say, you know, we're, we're, we're sticking it out because, you know, I, I, I learned from listening to everyone else that our problems aren't really going to be solved by breaking up, that I'm still going to, you know, that a lot of, uh, you know, 
whether it's because of jobs or, you know, just all the stresses of, of managing all that. Um, so I would say that, that would the, would the staff have been happier if all the couples ended up getting married at the end of the day? I, I think so, but I think they were pleased that at least they felt like couples were really taking something valuable away from it. Which, I mean, that of course, those are, you know, and it, I mean, I think that's, that's valuable, particularly if they're identifying value in their participation in the program. But those are, those are not the goals of, of these kinds of initiatives as envisioned by, you know, either the original welfare reform bill under Clinton or the, the, the sort of the modifications made both by George W. Bush and in the Obama administration. I think it's worth pointing out. They picked up and ran with these and made some shifts around the edge, but still sort of aligned themselves with this. Uh, success sequence and, and concern with fragile family kind of way of, of thinking about this. Um, but is there any evidence either in the work that you're done or the read of, of the broader literature that these kinds of programs actually succeed in achieving their stated goals? That's a great question. And I have a short answer and a longer answer. So the short answer is, is no. Uh, if, if, and this is, this is very contentious, very contentious. Um, so it depends on what, what you're measuring, right? How, how are you operationalizing, uh, effectiveness? Uh, if you're looking at it from the perspective of do these classes tend to, uh, improve couples communication skills or at least their, you know, their self reports of how well they're communicating? There's a lot of evidence that that's true. Uh, however, if you are looking at marriage rates, uh, and if you're looking at especially, you know, marriages, how long they're lasting and, and how happy people are with these relationships, um, you know, we, we didn't see, I mean, all of, all of the best efforts, many of them funded by the government, um, to, to test really are, are these programs having that impact? Are they actually, you know, having an impact on marriage rates? And, and the answer is really no. Now, taking that a step further, and are these programs having any impacts on things like the economic status of the couples who are taking them or various measures of child well-being? Well, the issue is a lot of the programs didn't even measure that. Um, I know that the program I studied really didn't. I think they had maybe one question in their evaluation about welfare receipt, but um, and 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 you know no on that as well. I mean we ha we really don't have any studies that if even if they did measure, it's showing that that these classes specifically, right? Because um, there's all these other possible extraneous factors that could have influenced all of these outcomes. But if you just look at couples who we're taking these classes, you know, are, and, and a lot of these studies, uh, you know, random assignment, uh, are, do they have higher marriage rates than the control group? No. Um, and, you know, do they have, are they showing economic benefits? And the answer to that is, is no. Um, so are they working in the way that policymakers envisioned? No, that just the evidence on that is pretty clear. So, so why do they persist these programs? Um, I, I think the, that's a very good question. Uh, and, and you're right. A lot of people thought that, that with the Obama administration that they would go away and, and they didn't. Um, he continued support. Uh, he doubled these, down in some ways. He did. And a lot more resources. And I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit later when I'm talking about my current research projects, but a lot more towards these what are called responsible fatherhood programs, which were really a companion policy. Um, so I, I, I think they're, I think they're, 
funded because one, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty easy. A lot of people are integrating these relationship classes in with other services like job support. I mean, it's actually a requirement of the programs. Now, uh, a lot of the funding that goes to both, uh, the, the healthy marriage and the responsible fatherhood programs, what they do is they now integrate these parenting and relationship skills classes into other support services like vocational training and educational programs. So I think if we see the evolution of the policy, there there is greater recognition uh, that you can improve people's really their family relationships by just kind of targeting those, you know, communication issues alone. Um, I, I think that there's still a lot of, of people, a lot of policymakers who, you know, really want to believe that it, it is kind of as simple as, you know, let's, let's get people to, you know, improve their relationships. Let's give them budgeting skills. I mean, it does really fit in with this larger idea of, you know, how we address poverty is through behavioral modification techniques. And, you know, I think it, quite frankly, really does fit within this larger neoliberal trend and policy, um, you know, trying to really encourage people to be more responsible, um, you know, not be you know, the word dependent on government aid. And I think it, it, it does really still reflect um, this, this, of widespread idea that what government services are about is about getting people to be self-sufficient. Um, so I think this is a, is a really good example of policies that reflect that kind of idea is if you, you know, that kind of the government's responsibility is to teach people how to help themselves. We've been speaking with Jennifer Randalls, who is uh, the author of Proposing Prosperity, question mark, Marriage Education Policy and Inequality in America. So what are you working on now, Jennifer? Great question. Uh, so I am engaged in two projects. Uh, one's wrapping up, one's just beginning. So I'll be happy to speak about both of those. So as part of this, this 1990s overhaul of welfare policy, along with the healthy marriage aspect, uh, what the government decided to do was to, to start putting public funding towards uh, fatherhood programs, uh, specifically responsible fatherhood programs. So having studied the healthy marriage side of this, uh, I, I found it, <laughs> I felt it necessary uh, to really look at what was happening in fatherhood programs. So I'm, I'm wrapping up a research project now for, uh, for about two years. I, I studied a responsible fatherhood program that was funded by a federal grant. And I spoke with uh, 64 uh, low-income fathers of color, uh, mostly Black and Latino, who were participating in, in one of these fatherhood programs. Uh, this particular program combined, uh, it offered them an opportunity to participate in work programs and to finish their uh, high school diploma, as well as take parenting and relationship classes. So I wanted to understand you know, how, how, how was this different than the marriage classes? What were dads getting out of this? Did they feel like these this kind of program was really helping them be the kind of father uh, that they wanted to be. And are you far enough along that you can preview the findings from that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so what I found was that um, they found the programs incredibly valuable. 
um, they, it's not that the programs allowed them to make a lot of money. They only made about 200 to $600 a month, depending on how much they were working and, and going to school. So it wasn't necessarily the programs were, I mean, it was providing something a lot more than what they had to begin with. It wasn't just that, but it was about kind of similar to what I found with the marriage programs. They talked a lot about the social support They talked a lot about the program really providing a context where they felt that being an involved father was a valued identity. And these were men who, I mean, so many overlapping, intersecting uh, uh, challenges, especially to being uh, involved fathers. Half of them uh, had been incarcerated at least once. Uh, Many of them uh, weren't able to live with their children. Either there was strained relationships with the children's mother or because they had been incarcerated or they just simply didn't make enough money. Uh, They didn't have a car uh, or they, you know, had their driver's license uh, revoked or, you know, they just didn't have the gas money uh, to get across town. Um, Now, many of them were living harder full time with their kids. And I, I asked them, I said, okay, so you're in this program. That's about being a better dad. It's about being a you know, responsible father. And they kept using this phrase that uh, a lot, a lot of scholars have, have found in similar studies. Uh, when I, when I asked them, what does it mean to you to be a good father? And they said, well, being a good father is about being there. And so what I asked, it was a very amorphous concept. Fathers defined it very differently. Uh, for some, it was, you know, I'm that child's primary parent. That's what being there is about. Whereas for others, you know, seeing them occasionally, being able to, you know, bring diapers or clothes when they saw them, that was, that was what being there was for them. And so when I asked them, I said, well, well how does this program fit into that, right? And they would say, you know, the program is really instrumental in allowing me to really claim an identity as a responsible father because before they had so few opportunities to do any of the things that 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 we that policymakers even right and that they really thought a, a good father should do uh, not only providing financial support um, or instrumental support but just even being able to provide you know care and to be that for, there for that child to pick that child up from school to to be there to read that child a bedtime story and what really emerged from the research was this idea that that being a good father really necessitates resources and opportunities. And it really challenges this idea that being a responsible dad is about somehow, you know, convincing these men that they need to, quote, step up, you know, that they, they need to develop an identity as, as a dad who's committed to being there. And, and these men already had that. It's not about identity or motivation. It's about just the, the, the fact that all kinds of father involvement, if it's, you know, providing money or if it's caring for that child, all kinds of involvement uh, involve opportunities. And the program, you know, it was, it was short term. They could only stay in there for two years. And so it wasn't a long term solution and certainly didn't address those structural factors that we know undermine fatherhood involvement in low income families. But it was, from their perspective, definitely helping them claim a responsible father identity, uh, helping them get access to the resources and opportunities they felt they needed to be there. And it was also just a place where this came up with a lot of fathers. Um, They said, you know, outside of these gates, outside of this program, all people see me as is an ex-convict 
or they see me as a deadbeat dad, or they see me as a gang member. They see my tattoos and they make all these judgments, but I've never been in a place like here. And they were referring to the building where the program was housed here. What people recognize me as is a student, as a parent, as a partner, as a hard worker, as someone who's trying to be a good role model for my son or my daughter, they, they see me for me and they, they see me as someone right, who has all these positive identities and not all of these other stigmatized statuses that people attach to me when I walk outside of this gate. I mean, another instance, obviously, in which uh, programs may in fact be having positive impacts in, in ways that are unexpected or even unintended from the original policy. So we have been speaking with Jennifer Randalls um, about a new project and and before that, talking about a new book out from Columbia University Press called Proposing Prosperity, Marriage Education Policy and Inequality in America. Um, Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It was truly my pleasure. Thank you for having me.